TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he always is, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, that's a interesting arm you have there. Are you sure that's yours, or did that belong to a different podcasting drone? Chris, I don't understand what you mean. This has always been my arm. It has always been a part of me. You will be assimilated. Your biological and technological distinctiveness will be added to our own. Resistance is futile. (laughs) And by own, you mean you and that other guy over there? There are many here. (laughs) You shall be assimilated. Your humor is not appreciated. Oh, wow. Wow. So, uh, sounds like in the 22nd century, the Borg are just not quite as menacing, at least not at first glance. I have a head cold. It's been a long time in the ice. (laughs) It's it's been a long time in the ice. How good would this episode have been (laughs) if that's the first thing that the Borg say? (laughs) It's been a long time. Frozen here in the ice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Yes, everyone. As you can tell, we are going to be talking about the Borg today as we discuss regeneration as part of our Enterprise 20th anniversary rewatch. It's the 23rd episode of season two. Here's a very quick rundown. A research team in the Arctic uncovers mysterious cybernetic beings while examining the wreckage of an alien ship that dates back more than 100 years. Unaware of the danger, they quickly find themselves assimilated by regenerated drones from a previous attempt by the Borg to assimilate Earth and stop first contact. The Enterprise is ordered to pursue the researcher's vessel, now under the control of the Borg, And Archer must make some difficult decisions as he quickly wakes up to the threat posed by this unknown alien menace. And Matthew, you and I talked about, you mentioned on the Artificial Tango, as we were discussing Picard, that the Borg like to have a lot of plans, a lot of contingency plans. And so in a sense, this might be an unplanned contingency plan of theirs waking up after oh so long in the ice and uh, finding themselves on earth again. What what did you think the first time that you heard that the Borg were going to appear on Enterprise and trying to imagine what that would mean for a series set in the 22nd century and if it would even work? You know, I, I think it's so interesting because when we think back to even the time when when Enterprise was on, you know, the internet isn't quite what it is now. Right. And the idea of like all these spoilers coming out and knowing, you know, uh, shows kind of releasing exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I was just thinking of the fact that as of now, we just had the trailer for Strange New Worlds drop today. 
And it, we know that Lower Decks is having a crossover. They've announced that. It's mm-hmm. been all over the Star Trek.com website. It's been all over yeah. their Twitter. Well, it's been and, there and now we even have, yeah. yeah. We even got it pictures of it now. And it mm-hmm. was a part of the uh the the trailer. So but you know, none of that really existed in the way uh that it does now. And so I think it was it was interesting because when we knew the Borg were going to come on, we didn't necessarily know how they were going to make that happen. Yeah, exactly. And so, in all honesty, you know, after seeing the episode, even just the first time that it came out, I think this isn't it, – it's one of the best prequel era uses of an alien species that I've ever seen. And, and part of that is just because we – build off of where we are in the timeline and what happened. And in fact, too, when you look at the explosion of the ship, there are clearly large fragments of the ship in First Contact. I mean, this is not Rise of Skywalker and the Death Star was obliterated and yet somehow mm-hmm. the throne room survived and landed on a That's because it's made of special planet. material, Matthew. I guess, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, I mean, somehow <laughs> the Emperor survived. Um, but, you know, this I, this really is, I think, a, a test case in exactly how to do mm-hmm. a, a prequel, sequel story setup. And, and, and two, it, it, it works so well because, I mean, you know, we even saw Zephram Cochran in the first episode, mm-hmm. you know, and so yeah. we are clearly in that time frame where, yeah, I mean, from then to where we are now, the fact that as we're exploring space with the NX-01, Starfleet is continuing to explore parts of Earth that they haven't. Um, and yeah, I mean, coming across this then in the arc. Arctic uh, makes sense. And and I mean, even the fact that it's in the Arctic, because, you know, where the ship was, it was aiming its weapons at Montana, which means, you know, the explosion would have carried pieces to the Arctic and not Antarctica. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, they really did put a lot of thought into this. And, and I just I every time I watch this episode, I'm continually impressed of how well it fits up. But I'm also impressed the way that this fits for somebody who's never seen Star Trek. My wife's never seen all of Star Trek. She's seen all the original series movies, but that's Mm -hmm. it. So we started a watch, and we're in Enterprise's third season right now. And so we got to this, and she has no idea who these aliens are. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. and so for her, this is just another story, and it'll be fascinating to see what happens when, you know, we get connected to TNG and then mm-hmm. first contact. But I mean, she liked the episode and, and so what's great here is that it works on all the levels you need an episode to work. Somebody who's never seen it. And for all the people who are diehard fans, just like we are. Mm-hmm. She's in the same position as the researchers and the enterprise crew and everyone here. Exactly. Not knowing right. Who these aliens are. Yeah. It's interesting. I like that you mentioned Zephram Cochran, and he gets a mention in this episode, and I like that they work it in about how some years later, he's giving a speech, and he just kind of opens up about what really happened, and he 
tells the story. And that was yes. another nice little <laughs> so bit great to throw into the Star Trek universe. And then the fact that T'Pol says, yeah, well, you know, he's he's known for making up stories and stuff like so. So the Zephram Cochran that we see in First Contact, that that character, that reputation, that kind of personality carries forward as well and is referenced in this episode in what I think is a fun way. So that all works well. But yeah, like you said, I think that it was very smart to pick up on what happened in First Contact and let that be the basis for the story. Because I remember very well at the time reading, I'm pretty sure it was in Star Trek Communicator Magazine, Rick Berman was giving updates on what's going to be coming up because like you said, we didn't have all the internet spoilers back then like we have today. And just knowing that the Borg were going to be coming, and I don't remember the exact column, so he may not have said this exactly in his column. I'd have to go back and look. But I just remember hearing that the Borg were going to be coming to Enterprise and thinking, oh no, how are they going to do that? That's not going to make any sense. We're in the 22nd century. And I didn't think about, hey, maybe they can pick up on first contact. And yet the writers, that's where they went. And it just works brilliantly. And it also works really well because you've got one of these rare episodes that opens without any of our crew, without any familiar characters, and runs that way for quite a while. It reminds me of Distant Origin on Voyager, where you've got a really long part of that episode before you ever encounter the Voyager yeah. crew. Yeah. And I love that. That's true. You know, I wouldn't want them to do that very often, but I think that it's something that you can do with a story. And if you do it well, it's really engaging for the audience because the audience knows what show they're watching. They know what's supposed to be happening. And they know that eventually the main characters are going to show up unless it's Deep Space Nine, and then maybe only one will. But this worked really well, and it sets the tone very well. And Mike Sussman and Phyllis Strong, who wrote the story, do a wonderful job of capturing that kind of old-style horror movie vibe of the monster and the uneasy setting or situation that someone finds themselves in. It's very creepy, and it it itself is a throwback in terms of that style of storytelling, just as the uh, Borg are being thrown back in time in the Star Trek universe. It's so interesting because I actually went back and rewatched the documentary that was mm -hmm. on the second season where the entire cast is back. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they... They talk about a lot of things, but I was I was just thinking about something that they wanted Enterprise, you know, especially for a lot of the first season to be on Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And it's interesting because this episode and then an upcoming episode are ones that really legitimize this idea, I think, to me, mm -hmm. uh, the idea that. Um, you you know you would be able to to pull this off and it would have worked. I mean, because 
you've got this episode and then First Flight is next. Mm-hmm. And both of those have big portions of them where it takes place on Earth. And of course, you know, we'll talk about that next mm-hmm. episode even more so. But it's interesting to me that you have such a great storyline here with Starfleet, with what's on Earth still at this point. And the way it connects. And to me, it's just proof, uh, again, that you could absolutely have made that work. And it would have been really interesting. And it's the kind of thing that if you were doing this series today, they would have allowed them to do. Oh, yeah. I think today they would have. Yeah. Absolutely. And and so, um, but I, I, I actually, I'm right there with you in the sense, I think this works so well to be able to have these characters. They're all, you know, we've got a great cast there uh, of people that, you know, you would see on other shows. Um, you know, the the main female lead there uh, was actually on the show Chuck, you know, mm-hmm. as the boss. Well, she's John um, Billingsley's wife as well, I believe, right? Really? I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I, I had not looked up that bit of trivia, but that's, that's awesome. Um, and that makes it a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think... All of this is just so great in its setup. And and again, it clearly shows how the writers were paying attention to the best ways to utilize things from our past, their future, to be able to create something really interesting story-wise. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, talk about going back to the future. But <laughs> uh, we... I'm just picturing I mean, these just... drones finding a DeLorean in the ice as well, <laughs> and then speeding around be the great, Arctic. Right? That'd be fantastic. You know, uh, where we're going, we don't need roads. Um, so I, I just think, too, this also is the place where we see that they utilize an alien species that was from the 24th century that works so much better than when they tried to, you know, kind of shoehorn in the Ferengi. Yeah, and so yeah. I, it, it's one of the, I mean, I'm probably just giving away how I feel about this episode, but I, I think it clearly shows that if you have people here writing who really understand the story of Star Trek really understand the history of Star Trek as in what's come before this show mm-hmm. and then understand the perfect way to utilize it. I mean, them yeah. picking up on this story from first contact was just perfection. Well, I think having an interest in tying the threads together is important. Exactly. Instead of yeah, exactly. pretending like something didn't happen or just ignoring it because you want to create something entirely new. Instead thinking, hey, you know, we could take this moment in this film and turn it into another story that ties two time periods together in a very unexpected way, but one that's completely organic for the Star Trek timeline and for the Star Trek universe, and that fans will really appreciate. But like you said about your wife watching it, if someone doesn't know the story, the story still works perfectly fine on its own, which can be very tricky to do right. when you're doing something like that. But I think here, yes, it does work fine because if you just put yourself in the shoes of the researchers or the Enterprise crew in this case, you wouldn't have known who they were either. So in keeping with that, Matthew, once they 
assimilate the they take the researcher ship and then they go out into space and they get this freighter. I found it also very clever how they were able to portray the Borg, the feeling of the Borg, without having a Borg cube, without having an army of drones that look like the familiar drones, because we see the transformation of the researchers into drones, where they still have more of a human appearance, but uh, they're obviously drones. They're, they've obviously been assimilated. As a viewer who's familiar with the Borg, you fully understand what's happening. But it positions them kind of out of time, I guess, out of place, where it's it's sort of this representation of what the Borg assimilation process does, how the cybernetic part of the Borg drive who they are now as a, I can't really use the word species. Maybe I can use the word species, but, but they're a, they're a collective of various species, right? Who are being turned into this single other one called the Borg, but you can see how the technology drives that even when it's removed from its usual environment. So everything has a very clear process and even visually has a process that we're familiar with when it's in the collective itself with the cubes like we've seen on the next generation voyager or in first contact but here it's been removed from that and so it's 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 like they're in the wilderness right and they're trying to survive and and find their way through the wilderness and the point of my rambling is that I think that creatively and visually, they did a really excellent job of portraying that in a way that feels familiar to us, but also doesn't feel out of place for the situation that these unfrozen Borg drones and the humans they've assimilated find themselves in. You know, I like that you bring this up because I think one of the things that it really does is that it helps ameliorate any kind of like what you might think of as incongruities mm -hmm. between this Borg and the Borg in the future, like them not saying we are the Borg or any of those type of things. Yeah, they were careful because, not to use that exact phrase, right? Exactly. And I know some fans think that's awful and, you know, and they think we're jumping the shark by having the Borg here. But I think the beauty of this is that, you know, when you freeze something for a hundred years and basically... Yes, you're preserving their their organic nature because of them being frozen. But, you know, you can rationalize and easily think of the idea that everything that they were and really knew is gone. And now it's just basically Borg instinct they're running on. Yeah, because yeah, that's, that's sort the of software what, that that's, yeah, that's yeah, sort that of all where they I was have going left. with my rambling. there. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I think you calling that out is is 100% accurate, and it's what makes this episode, again, so well thought out, and it's what makes it work so well, uh, and it, it doesn't violate any canon, I don't believe, because of that, because all they have left is this software nature that drives them to get back to the Delta Quadrant and relay information but they don't have any of the other nuances anymore because they've just been 
woken up from being frozen and all of that is gone because that part of them has really basically been dead, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that this really works well. And in many ways, too, I think you almost basically have as close to zombie Borg as you can get. Yeah, uh, right. That's know. a good point, too, because that's something that sort of came to be missing in the Borg over time as they were utilized so much in Star Trek. It's why still the best of both worlds portrayal of the Borg is the point at which, and maybe First Contact can fit into this because they had the budget to make it feel scarier, but those best of both world Borg are the ones that feel the most menacing because they're just this faceless, there's this enemy that's just, that just has this drive to it and they are a lot more zombie-like. Well, and I think that it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's... um. It is very clear that they put a lot of thought into how this works and 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 what's going on and how this fits into canon. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I find it interesting, too, that so many fans might still not want to forgive this mm-hmm. when, you know, they're lavishing praise on something like Discovery or Strange New Worlds, which I don't like Discovery, but I like Strange New Worlds. But in the end, Strange New Worlds actually doesn't fit with canon very well. Uh, if you're watching it, it just doesn't. I still love it. I think it's it's really fun. But, you know, it, it just doesn't fit well with what you've got coming beforehand. But I mm-hmm. think this, in all honesty, fits rather perfectly. And there's plenty of places where I think if you... Just allow your mind to have a, a percolate everything that happens here. It's all easily explainable just by things that we watch happening in the episode. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the situation with Flocks and the fact that he's able to resist, his body's able to resist somewhat the nanoprobes? I know that he kind of explains in the episode that there's something about his biology that the nanoprobes are baffled by, they're not quite able to assimilate him. We haven't really seen that in Star Trek with Borg assimilating pretty much anybody up to this point. So suddenly here are Denobulans who, it seems, the Borg are not able to as quickly assimilate. It does seem that unless Flox is able to find a way to get rid of the nanoprobes that he would eventually be assimilated, but it's a very slow process, which is very lucky and convenient for the crew of the Enterprise. But in terms of if we're talking about storytelling and fans maybe having some problems with what they see as incongruities with the canon, does that make sense to you? Is it because the Borg have never encountered Denobulans before? Although the Borg often encounter species they've never encountered before. Is it that the nanoprobes have been frozen too long, they don't work quite as well, or is it just convenient for the story because they need Dr. Flox to not become a drone? No, I I think actually what makes this work is that we noted that denobulans have used genetic engineering in their makeup, and so... I think that actually, and again, it, it's one of the things that comes straight mm-hmm. from the show. If you've been watching it, you know that that's happened. And so therefore, because of that 
uh, I would suspect that they would have a very robust immune system. You know, I think when we saw that the doctor had like a cold or something mm-hmm. that was super rare for Denobians really to get super sick very often. Mm-hmm. And so I think all of these things actually really work well together. And it does make sense to me because the Borg would come up against species and we have seen it. We saw them come up against species 8472 and Voyager and they had a lot of problems trying to assimilate them. And so the fact that there are species out there that don't succumb to assimilation or maybe don't succumb quickly to assimilation Mm -hmm. is totally within the realm of possibility. And I, I think that this is one of those places where too many fans think just because I've never seen it on screen before means it can't happen. Mm -hmm. And that's just so silly because if it hasn't happened on screen before, then there's nothing to say that it can't happen because in the end, it's all make-believe, right? (laughs) So (laughs) I I, I think, you know, that's one of those things where this, the more I thought about it, the more it made total sense to me because of flocks and his species and the things that we had learned about them mm-hmm. already previously in seasons one and two so far. Mm-hmm. What I do like about the explanation flocks gives about the nanoprobes is the idea that they are persistent and they will adapt. And we're accustomed to the Borg adapting, especially their shielding. But the idea that it goes all the way down to the nanoprobe level and the nanoprobes themselves are adapting to the situation, I think it makes a lot of sense in today's world. It may have sounded a little bit more science fiction-like at the time the story was written, but in today's world, it makes even more sense to me that something like a nanoprobe would be able to do that, so... Anyway, that works uh, pretty well. Yeah, in terms of like Species 8472 being a different type of alien, when I said that we haven't seen the Borg really have problems assimilating species, there I'm speaking purely of humanoid species like the Denobulans being part of that because when we've seen them take over starships, it doesn't really matter who's on the ship, they're able to just assimilate them pretty quickly. But it works fine for me in the story. And again, when you're telling a story, you have to find ways to create suspense, keep the characters that you need in action. And that, uh, like you said, drawing on what we know about the Denobulans from earlier in the series, it's plausible enough that it works. Well, and I also think that, you know, we are, we see the Borg having to play with 22nd century technology as well. And mm-hmm. so they don't have the technological prowess. They're having to turn what they find into that. And mm-hmm. so they yeah, don't have the, the advantages that, that we normally see them have. And so when you basically feel like the, you know these are popsicle Borg that have only their base instincts to go off of, you know, we're not really dealing with the Borg in their prime at this point. And so I, you put all of these things together. And, and again, I think it really helps the, the episode make sense. But I, I think it just 
it just makes for a good episode, mm-hmm. really. I mean, this is a really enjoyable episode. And, and I think that another really important thing on that is that when I think about where we're going into season three, this is the perfect episode to help encapsulate the type of choices that Archer is going to begin to have to make every single day. Mm-hmm. And I think it's phenomenal because, again, I'm a little bit ahead of where we are with my wife because we're in the middle of season three right now. And this episode, and you can clearly tell, I think, that this is an episode that they put that type of decision making in because they knew what was coming. And mm-hmm. so I I I love it. I, I think it's it's one of the things that makes this one of the best episodes of, of season two because of how much it's doing to set up the character and where he's gonna go in season three. But it also I think it it does a great job of setting up this entire crew with the places that season three is gonna go and how difficult it's going to be and the decisions that they're gonna have to make. And you know, flocks talking about how he underestimated these nanoprobes, but he won't do that again. I mean, like everybody here is learning an incredible lesson and our Archer, you know, we, we get to really see from his perspective, I think the whole crew does. And, and again, sets the stage for the last few episodes of this season and absolutely where we're going to go in season three. Yeah. It's a great point about how it sets up archers need to make decisions that would have been difficult for him to make in the past, but will be very necessary in season three and what's coming up. And just speaking of those decisions in this episode, his initial reaction is very human, very much what we would expect from Archer. He wants to save people. He feels like he can save people and not knowing what the Borg are yet, he doesn't really understand what he's dealing with, but it pretty quickly becomes clear that he's going to have to take a different approach to this. And I think it's portrayed quite well. I think that Scott Bakula does a nice job of portraying that moment of decision of having to airlock people who he wanted to save, but he realizes he can't. And what a difficult decision that is for him, but one that he realizes is necessary. I, yeah, no, I I mean, I just, it, it's so much fun, obviously, for us to be able to do this uh, as we had been celebrating the 20th anniversary of, of Enterprise to, to go through this rewatch. But there's all of these things that you begin to find when you rewatch these seasons. And I think part of that has really come down to the fact that Enterprise was definitely playing with more serialization than any show minus Deep Space Nine at this point. And I think when you rewatch Enterprise a few times, you really get to see how all of these interconnected threads are really running through the seasons. And, and so I, it's one of my favorite things about rewatching the series so far. And I I think they've done a really good job of being 
episodic enough, but at the same time, if you're watching those, they're continually building the characters, they're continually building this universe as they go forward, and this is a prime example of that, specifically with Archer and his crew, and giving them an experience that is completely outside of the cube, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in a way that is going to rock their world, but it's only the beginning of what they're going to face in the next few episodes and then an entire season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's great stuff. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. The whole episode, I think I've just been praising it, but mm-hmm. re-watching it, and I've actually watched this a couple of times in the last few weeks, and continually just been impressed rewatching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of a simple story, actually, especially coming off of Cogenitor, which we discussed last time. It's just uh, because we're already familiar with the Borg as well. So as viewers, we, we know who they are and we know what they're going to try to do. It's a pretty straightforward story that's just a fun ride all the way through. And there are the moments... As we've discussed, Archer having to learn to make very tough decisions that he would rather not make, but which prepare him for the uh, challenges that he's going to be facing soon. But it also, it just does a nice job of bookending a 24th century story with first contact in a way that makes sense here, but then looping it back around, which is where the book ending comes in, when T'Pol says, hey, you know, don't worry about it. It'll take at least 200 years for their signal to get there, which will be back in the 24th century and begin the loop that brings these drones to Earth in the first place. And so here, if we talk about causality and temporal loops the story makes it all work yeah i mean and i I think you make a great point that this is is somewhat a a simple episode but you know what one last thing that i was just thinking in my brain was that even just the way that this episode is set up especially for those who maybe this was their first time into star trek Mm -hmm. like my wife um, really, I mean, again, she's seen the original series movies, but, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with this. And the idea that in the Arctic we might find something like this makes sense, right? That somehow as we are exploring our world that we might come across some sort of alien technology or something like that. I mean, that's just classic type of sci-fi anyway. And so I think it fits perfectly within the storytelling structure that we get in this episode. Well, and also in the time period, it works because there are parts of our world deep under the Arctic ice, deep on the ocean floor. There are places on our planet that we have not explored. We really don't know what's there. We know more about some bodies in our solar system than we do about our own planet. And... With this being in the 22nd century, you look where we are now, you know, we're well, we're two decades into the 21st century now. It's completely plausible that we still would not have explored 
these areas where they find this wreckage. Now, I'm hoping yeah. there's not any real Borg wreckage on the planet right now, I hope. But, <laughs> but the idea that it could happen, especially since in-universe here, we already know that there was a crashed vessel. Of course, yeah. It, it works perfectly. Yeah, I mean, you know, all in all, to me, this is one of the standout episodes, obviously, of the series. And I have no problem giving this five Borg assimilations because out of five, uh, because I, I think it's just a phenomenal episode. I mean, if there, if you're going to knock anything in the episode, it's the fact that uh, snow on TV almost never looks like real snow. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm not really going to get on them for that. I, I just think that start to finish, this is a great episode of Star Trek. And it does such a wonderful job of pulling in story elements that make perfect sense with all that's come before. And I love it. And I, I, I really enjoy having gotten a chance to rewatch it twice in like the last three weeks, you know, which, you know, there are a lot of episodes where if you had to watch them twice in three weeks, you'd be like, oh, please, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're not talking about your your weekly rewatch of Profit and Lace, right? You know, I just I gotta say I was uh, <laughs> I was watching the Shuttlepod show, and one of Ira Stephen Bear's least favorite episodes of all time of Deep Space Nine is also Profit and Lace. So I'm in good company. Okay, <laughs> no, no surprise there, of course. All right, yeah, no, I agree with you on on everything that you've said about this episode. I just think it was a brilliant little bit of storytelling. And I remember watching it for the first time, going into it, wondering, oh my gosh, what are they going to do? How are they going to pull this off? And thinking, well, that was really clever. That was really smart. And I, it's one of my favorite Enterprise episodes. And I'm going to give it 10 giant popsicles, which reminds me, Earlier, you said Popsicle Borg. I like to, I have this alternate headcanon where the two drones that were unfrozen, they never make it back to the collective. And so they settle on Ryza and they form a band called Popsicle Drones. <laughs> <laughs> and, I like it. I think it's going to be great. Yeah. And, and Ryza is the perfect place for them because, you know, it gets a little bit toasty on a Borg ship. Yeah, they like it. They like it humid. Yeah, they like it humid. Ugh, ugh. They'd love Texas in the summer. Oh, God, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Or Alabama, or Alabama. Mississippi, yeah. Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, and I tell people oh. here, because it's hot and humid here in Tokyo as well, but I tell people here, back in Alabama, you know, what, what people up north call rain, we just call humidity, because you can walk around and see the water <laughs> floating in the air in the summer. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. All right, everyone. We would love to hear your thoughts on regeneration. There are many ways for you to share those with us. Perhaps the best way is to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That is our listeners group. It is a closed group. So if you're joining for the first time, please do answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum so that I can let you in. If you're already there, of course, you know how it works. There will be a post on the timeline for this episode, and you can share your thoughts, your comments with Matthew and me and fellow listeners right there 
in the comments on that post. To find it, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If not, just type the whole name, The Babel Conference. If you'd like to send us email, you can do that by going to our website, trek.fm slash contact. Use the form you find there, choose to send to a show, and choose Warp 5. And that will come right on over to Matthew and me by email. And of course, you can find us in social media. Our username everywhere is trek.fm. Now, Matthew, when you're not out there in the Arctic Circle with your metal detector, looking around, seeing what kind of goodies you can find, where can people find you? Well, uh, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. I am most active on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero. Uh, you can also, of course, find me here in the Six Hundred Two Club on the TFM Network. We're talking about all of those phantoms outside of Star Trek we love. It's a great big summer. We have so much going on. In fact, uh, we've got a brand new co-host that's going to be joining, alternating with Chrissy. Zachary Fruling is going to be back on TFM, which I can't wait for. We've got some great stuff lined up for you. So many great movies coming out this summer as well that we're going to be talking about. So check that out. You can also find me doing The Orb with you, Chris, as we talk about the 30th anniversary of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Literary tracks about the books and the comics of Star Trek. We've got Artificial Tango as we talked about season three of Star Trek Picard. That's wrapped up. And then Strange New Worlds is coming back. So that means that you better saddle up with Saddle Up. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, I've got Owl Post about Harry Potter. We talked about every single chapter of that series, one chapter at a time. And the great John Mills and I are talking about Star Wars each and every week over on Aggressive Negotiations. Uh, but Chris, when you're not trying to wake up after that long, cold sleep, where can people find you? <laughs> Are you talking about me right now this morning as we're recording this and I'm trying to wake up? <laughs> I mean, up? I wasn't going to say anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's early morning for me and my brain is not fully functional at the moment and it has been chilly here, so... Oh, so you're unlike Data where you're yeah. not fully functional yet (laughs) (laughs) my brain is not so um but it has been chilly here as well so that cold sleep sort of describes last night as well but no when i'm uh when i am fully awake you can find me elsewhere on the network of course with you matthew doing the shows that you mentioned also larry nemechek and i do the ready room from time to time you can find me in many episodes in the back catalog across a range of shows and if you'd like to chat, you can find me in social media. My username everywhere is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That is my username everywhere. Twitter's where I'm most active, but I'd love to chat with you in social media. And then if you'd like to help us keep this show and everything that we're doing on the network going, we could definitely use your help to find out how to get involved, how to support the network. Please visit patreon.com slash trekfilm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N com slash trekafilm and i'd like to send a huge thank you to everyone who's supporting us right now we truly would not be here without your help so thank you so very much well matthew i am looking forward to going on a little test flight with you next week as we talk about first flight and we inch our way closer to the end of season two chris i am so excited to be talking about this episode next, so let's go. Mm-hmm.